I don't know uh, if you've ever lived far away from your family, but I have lots, a lot of times in my life. My parents live in Austin. My sister lives in Houston. And it seems like no matter where we've lived, we've been 825 miles from my parents' house. So for several years, we lived in Tucson. That was 825 miles west of Austin. And then we moved to northern Alabama, up close to Huntsville. That was 825 miles away from Austin. And we have four kids. And so anytime it was time to go visit for Thanksgiving or Christmas or just to go see them over the summer, we didn't fly. That was too much to deal with, with the four kids. But we would load up the minivan, pile stuff on top of each other, and we would load up and, and start that drive, that 825-mile drive. And so for years, we did that in one day. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone on an 800-mile road trip with four kids in the car. But let me just say that it carries with it its own kind of special uh, travel frustrations, right? Uh, some of my favorites are you get back on the freeway from getting gas, and you immediately hear, I have to go to the bathroom. And then you see the sign that says, next exit 10 miles. Right? And it's like, what are we going to do? Or some of my other favorites are, he's touching me. <laughs> you love that one, don't you? Or you're on my side. Scoot over. Why are you on my side? And then the all-time classic, right? Uh, are we there yet? Right? And you haven't even crossed the state line yet. Yeah. Maybe you haven't even left your neighborhood. Uh, yeah, so it's a special kind of travel frustration. Um, but how does it feel when you finally arrive at your destination? When you finally pull into the driveway, it's such a good feeling. It's such a relief because I'm not going to hear those things anymore, right? No, it, it's because it's the reason for the journey. It's the destination. So I want to congratulate you because, again, this is the last letter of our All In series. Next week, Derek's going to do a wrap-up and bring it all together. But this is the last letter spelling All In. And after today, I think, I hope, you're going to have the beginning of that sense of pulling into the driveway, of the reason for the journey, of feeling that completeness. It's a lot smoother than an 800-mile car ride with four kids. I hope you haven't uh, been having some of those twitches that I used to have when I made those trips. But it's been packed with a lot to think about, a lot to process regarding what it means to be all in with Jesus. Uh, I think some of that noise are the same noises I would hear on the trip. <laughs> I think those might be my kids. All right. Uh, so let's recap the letters. The A, is it stands for plan A. I share a better way. There is no plan B. And, and if you are trying to scribble all this down, we've got journals that are available in different places, and it's got it on the cover. Or you can cheat and go back to the poster right after if you want to write all these down. But um, So we are plan A. God chooses to use us to share his message of good news to the world. The first L is love God. Everything I do, I do for God. It starts with love because he first loved us, because he first served us. We don't do it um, legalistically. We do it out of a love relationship that we have with him. The next L is learning and living. We live out that truth together. We do it in community. There's a reason we gather together to be encouraged, to see that we're not alone, um, to have a place where we can come and and live out our gifts and serve one another in order to be uh, encouraged and trained to go out and do it in the world like God's called us to. And then finally, I, 
I invest my time, talents, and treasures in God's kingdom. When we are doing it out of a love relationship with him, we want to invest in God's kingdom. We want to do things that have lasting impact. And so that's what last week's was about. If you missed any of those, you can always go find them. You can do it on Facebook. There's some of the, the videos or archives there from the services, or you can find the, the recordings on the website or your favorite podcasting app. But this week, I get to kind of pull it all together. I get to pull us into the driveway and complete the journey, right? The end, not about me, I fight for peace. And the thing about this letter in is I don't think it's just another piece of the puzzle. I think it really functions as kind of an underlying foundation for all of the other letters because it answers that why question. You know, just like having that journey, why are you willing to, to drive for 15 hours to go see your parents with everybody piled in the car together? It's because of what you get on the other end. It's because of the, the destination. And so um, it's such a relief when you pull into that and understand the why I hope that today has a, a similar effect because this really does answer the why question. As we talk about unity, it'll help put everything else we've talked about over these last few weeks into a different, more complete perspective because unity is like the glue that holds it all together. And it's not just unity among us, what you'll see as we dive in. It's unity with the Father that also talks about unity with one another. So let's pray as we get into this idea today. God, I just thank you for the opportunity we have to know you, to be forgiven, to consider ourselves unified with you through the forgiveness of Jesus, knowing that uh, he has made us righteous. Nothing we could do could have done it, but God, you chose to redeem us through your son. And so I just thank you for the unity we can have with you. I thank you for the unity that brings with one another. And I just pray, God, that as we dive into this today, that you would help us to see how all the pieces fit, that you would convict us where we need conviction, you would encourage us where we need encouragement, and that we would take the steps that you call us to, uh, even in these next few moments. And it's in your son Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, I think I've talked about this a little before. Um, I can't remember. I've, I've preached enough times now that I can't remember what I've told you. Uh, when it was once a year, I could always remember what I said. But uh, Derek's got me doing this more often. But you can't tell by looking at me, but I was a pretty good basketball player in high school. Um, and, and it shocks a lot of people. But <laughs> between the, my 10th and 11th grade year, a new school opened that was going to serve my neighborhood. So we had all the meetings about the rezoning and parents are angry because their kids are going to have to change schools, all that kind of stuff. It was going to be the largest high school in Austin, Texas as soon as it opened, um, which was crazy. I had been going to a school across town because it was a better school district. My mom taught in that district. I'd been going there since sixth grade. And it took about 30 to 40 minutes to drive from our house to that school. And so it was quite a distance. It was hard to be engaged with extracurricular things. It made it difficult to really have a lot of close friendships. I knew all the people in my neighborhood. So between 10th and 11th grade, this new school is opening. We decide that my sister and I, she's two years younger, we decide we're going to go to the new school. Well, again, one of the things that was really important to me was basketball. And I'll never forget the day that we showed up for the tryouts at this new school, people from all different teams. You can imagine, they played basketball at their school, so they're assuming they're going to be on the team at the new school. We had over 100 people try out for 12 positions on varsity and 12 positions on JV. 
So I wasn't interested in JV. If I was on JV, I was probably going to quit. So for me, I looked at 100 people for these 12 spots. That was kind of scary. Well, uh, it came down to it, and I was one of the 12. We had one senior. The rest of us were younger because the seniors that played, they had stayed at their schools. They didn't want to trade for their senior year. And so we were a young team. We didn't really know each other. We didn't have very good chemistry. We were all learning a new system uh, coming from the different programs that we'd been in. And we had a fantastic year. Sarcasm. <laughs> Our record was a dazzling two wins and 29 losses. And it's not even as good as that sounds because we beat the same team twice. <laughs> so it was needless to say, that was quite a tough year that we were 2 and 29. And that, that senior graduated. I think he regretted ever coming to our school. Um, but the ones that were still there, we decided that wasn't going to happen again. So we spent a lot of time together. We all joined the same summer league. We spent our free time together shooting baskets at any spot we could find where two or three of us could be together. We, we worked hard on weights. We worked hard in the offseason. We studied our, our offense. We ran the plays when no one was looking. I mean, we were, we were committed. And it really made a difference. Our senior year, we had the chemistry. We really gelled. We worked together much better as a team. And we had a much better season. We didn't win state or anything. It's not like Hoosiers. But uh, we did have 18 wins the next year. And they were against all different teams. Uh, we didn't just beat the same team twice. Uh, much different. And unity was really the key to that. You know, unity is recognized in a lot of different uh, cultures, a lot of different settings as a key ingredient to success. I did a quick Google, Google search of unity, and it brings up a lot of stuff, especially related to the workplace, like conflict in the workplace, the opposite of unity, and how to, how to make the workplace environment better. I want you to look at this quote uh, that I found when I Googled it. It says, workplace conflict often occurs when business, departmental, or team goals are not clearly communicated by managers and leaders to their employees. As a result, those employees may disagree fundamentally on what the goal actually was. Consequently, conflict arises as they each proceed based on a firm certainty of the correctness of their individual perspectives. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but I have. I've even experienced it in church. Uh, they're all good ideas, but maybe they're not lining up like they should. They don't, they don't have that unity. And this is kind of the uh, exact opposite of unity because the goals aren't clear. Each person assumes their own individual perspective is correct. But because those perspectives aren't based on a clear understanding of the goal, they're all different, and they ultimately come in conflict with each other. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. This is great, but this is not a business course, right? Uh, what does this have to do with being an all-in follower? What does this have to do with how we live out our faith here at Common Ground? Well, the first thing I want us to have as a foundation, the first thing we need to understand is unity is vital in the church. Unity is vital in the church. It's not just a good idea in business. It's not just something that helps a team go from 2 and 29 one year to 18 wins the next year. Unity is vital in the church because it's a spiritual principle based on our identity in Christ. It's not just a good idea. There's a reason unity works when we talk about the workplace or we talk about an athletic team. It's because it's part of how God designed us to reflect 
who he is. The world searches for it, the world longs for it, but true unity can only be found in Jesus. I just want to give you a few examples in Scripture. We're going to blow through these pretty quick. But um, a few examples of how we see unity talked about in Scripture. Philippians 2, 2 and 3 says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Ephesians 4, 3 says we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The last one, Romans 15, 5 and 6 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, that's just a quick sampling. But it shows us that unity in the body of Christ, those are all letters to churches from the Apostle Paul. Unity in the church, unity in the body of Christ is obviously important. Um, there's kind of a shocking quote in a book that my friend uh, Austin Ryan wrote. It's called Radical Worship Solution. A lot of the worship teams read it or, or has a copy of it. Um, and he was actually here a few years ago during the, the launch of this location, I think, led the service that day. But his quote about unity is that until you get unity right, stop having worship services. That is such a foundational part of how we reflect the character of God that we have to be fighting for unity. We have to be striving for unity. Another guy you probably know, uh, Derek Carpenter, he teaches here sometimes. Um, he once said in a sermon when he was preaching on this very same topic, he said, the greatest threat to the church and its effectiveness is a lack of unity among believers. The greatest threat. It's the, it's the thing we've got to get right first. And I want us to spend the rest of our time together looking at a passage in John chapter 17 because I don't want you just to take my word for it. I don't want you to take any business quote word for how important unity is. I want us to see the very words of Jesus himself to see why it's such a foundational concept in our spiritual journey. So again, this is going to be in John chapter 17, and we're going to look specifically at verses 20 to 26 for the rest of our time. And it's really an incredible moment in the life of Jesus because we have recorded here a prayer that he's praying. The entire chapter is a prayer that he's praying. And he's been praying for the disciples up to this point. But at verse 20, he shifts his focus and he actually prays for you and me in this prayer. So let's hear what he says again, verses 20 to 26. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only. That's the transition. Not just for the disciples, he says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. 
I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So here's Jesus, and this moment is just hours before he gets arrested, put on trial, and eventually crucified. And Jesus is praying, and we are on his heart. He's thinking about us. He's thinking about the future believers because of the message that's going to spread through the disciples and what would be important for him to pray for us. And the first thing we see in this prayer is that unity matters to Jesus. Unity matters to Jesus. It's not just a good idea. It's not just a helpful strategy. It's not just a way to avoid conflict. It's not just the last letter in a creative church acrostic. It's important because it reflects the very character of God. Unity reflects the very character of God. Again, in this prayer that he's praying, verses 20 and 21, he says, I do not ask for these, the disciples, only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's you and me, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So, Jesus relates the unity that we're to have as believers to the unity he has with God the Father. They're one. Knowing Jesus is knowing God. They are one. It's reciprocal. It's inclusive. Jesus says we're to be one just like that relationship that he has with God. And that unity is based on the relationship of oneness we see in the Trinity where it talks about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I don't completely understand it. I can't adequately explain it. But I can say there's no higher example of unity, and that's what Jesus is relating, the unity we're to have to. The word for one in this, in this verse is actually the Greek word that talks about a prime number. So if you remember your math, prime number can only be divided by itself. It's not divisible by anything else, right? So if we're truly united in Christ, then no one and nothing should be able to divide us. We're like a prime number with God. No one and nothing should be able to divide us. It's a really interesting way to understand unity when you think about that. And our unity as believers, again, is a reflection of that divine unity. And Jesus prays that we would have that unity among us right before his arrest, his trial, and his execution. I think he had a lot on his mind. So I think we can safely say unity is important to Jesus because when he paused, when he had a moment to pray for us, this is what he prayed for. He goes on in verses 22 and 23. He says, The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. The idea of glory is a little trickier to understand. But glory just means the magnificent manifestation of God's presence. God shows up. His glory is in, is in the place. It's the magnificent manifestation of God's presence. And Jesus says he's passed to us the manifestation of God's presence to facilitate our unity. That's really good news because it means creating unity is not just up to us. It's not something we just work hard for. We have an active role in it. But God says, I've given, Jesus says, the, the glory you've given me, I've passed on to them so that they might have this unity that we have with one another. 
It comes through our relationship and reliance on our Savior, Jesus Christ. And our unity matters to Jesus. Even further down in verses 25 and 26, he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So our connection to Christ in unity is built on the love of God in us. The same love that God has for his son. Our unity is built on love and it expresses that same love as we reflect the character of God because that unity, that oneness, that prime number can only be divided by itself. And when we have unity that only God can give, we are one with each other, with Jesus, and with him, with God the Father. This unity that only God can give, this unity that the world strives for and knows is important, it's only possible as we uh, connect ourselves to God through his son, Jesus Christ. So unity matters to Jesus. The second thing we see in this prayer is that unity opens the door for God to work in and through us. Unity opens the door for his work. We've talked about through this prayer of, of Jesus up to this point, I've, I've purposely left a couple of phrases out. So if you're paying close attention, you're probably like, why did he skip those? Well, here we go. We're going to go back to them. At the end of verse 21 and the end of verse 23, verse 21 says this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And the two words at the beginning of these phrases is so important. The words, so that. We've already established there's no question Jesus wants us to live in unity, but kind of the lingering question is why. Why is it so important? Why does it matter to him so much? And these two little words show us the answer because they shine a light on the purpose of this unity that he's calling us to. And the answer is crystal clear. So that the world may know the truth of Jesus. Our unity is a reflection of the truth of Jesus. This little phrase is what gives followers of Jesus an advantage over all the other organizations that are striving for unity. We have crystal clear objectives we're working toward. We are unified, and that unity reflects the very character of God so that the world may believe in Jesus as Savior. God's designed it so that when the world sees us, when the world sees our unity with one another, it realizes there's something missing, and it wants to know what that is. And the answer to that question is our relationship with Jesus Christ. So ultimately, unity among us as believers isn't about us. It's about those that don't know Jesus yet, those that need to be introduced to him. It's about evangelism. It's why our final letter is in, and that phrase is not about me. Not about me. I fight for peace. You know, one of the problems with finding unity in the church is we kind of can have a misunderstanding of what unity is and what purpose it serves. Because we think of unity as like we all get along. We all kind of like each other. We all smile and shake hands. And that's a part of it. But unity is not just the absence of conflict. It does not mean that we all get along perfectly. It's not even about complete agreement. You know, we usually measure unity by our level of good feelings about each other, but that doesn't carry the full meaning. I want to show you a, a dangerous cartoon. Are you ready for it? Are you nervous? There it is. It's a 
it's a Republican symbol and a Democratic symbol shaking hands. And Uncle Sam is saying, any chance of keeping this rally going off the field? Right? I don't think, uh, and I'm not going to get political, so don't get too worried. Um, but I don't think any of us would describe what's going on in our political sphere as a country as unity right now. Right? It's extremely divisive. It's extremely combative. Um, regardless of your political views, one thing we can agree on, though, I think, is a desire for unity in our leadership. We know it's okay to disagree. We know it's okay to have vigorous debate over policies and ideas. But behind that debate, what we can have confidence in when they're having this discourse is we believe our leaders collectively are working toward the best interest of the country, that that's their motivation. And I think that's part of the breakdown, is we don't have, we're not unified around that belief that they have the best interest of the country. Um, and so there's this extreme divisiveness, but inside we all long for unity. We all long for both sides to work together. Well, as followers of Jesus, our unity is so much more important than political unity uh, in the United States because we're pursuing God's desires. We're pursuing God's mission. And true biblical unity requires a shared mission. Right? It requires that underlying belief that we're going for the thing that's, that matters. In the political discourse, it would be the best interest of the country. That would unify us. But in the Christian realm, we have to have that shared mission of God. Um, I can get along with lots of people, but if I don't share that mission, then we're not really unified. Right? I can get along with my neighbor that has completely opposite religious beliefs, but we're not unified in our mission of how we're trying to live our life. So unity requires relationship and mission. Um, that's why these so that statements in Jesus' prayer are so important. It implies that we not only set aside our differences, but actually scripture teaches our differences are a source of strength for the people of God. Because God harnesses our differences through his power and his love to send us in the same direction on this shared mission. God harnesses our differences. It's a source of strength when he's involved in, in the equation. So when we understand our interconnected relationship with God and with one another in Christ, and we load up this battleship that we call common ground so that we can fulfill the mission of helping people experience and know God, we open the door for God to work in and through us. And there's no limit to what he can accomplish. That's the beautiful thing. When we truly get this unity right, there's no limit to what he can accomplish in and through us. But here's, the, here's kind of the flip side of the coin. Because unity is such a powerful force for God's work, it becomes one of the primary targets for the enemy. Just like Derek said in his quote, the greatest threat is a lack of unity among believers. If the enemy can destroy unity, he can destroy the effectiveness of the mission. And that's why we say the end is not about me, but also we fight for peace. You have to actively be working hard to make sure that unity stays uh, in the body. We take seriously the charge to protect and nurture unity within our church. It's why this idea of being a battleship and not a cruise ship is something that we talk about all the time. Because it helps to center us around that, that shared mission, right? It's not about me. It's not about sitting back and getting a drink with an umbrella in it, right? That's what you do on a cruise ship. You do whatever you want. 
on a battleship, you have a mission, you have a role, and we're, we're doing that together. Um, remember Derek's dance of the porcupine picture. If you haven't heard that, as we work together, it's like two porcupines close together trying to find their way, like in their little home in the ground. I don't know how porcupines live. Uh, I'm picturing them in the ground. Um, and as they try to get comfortable, as they try to work together, they're naturally going to prick one another. We do the same thing. Our differences are naturally going to cause us to prick one another at different times. Um, but as we seek unity, we're going to have that disagreement and conflict, and we can easily get sidetracked. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I've seen it in churches. We can have disagreements. We can have conflict. We can get sidetracked. And usually it starts when we forget to think about others as more important than ourselves, when we forget that we're on a battleship and not a cruise ship. Uh, it can even come out when we're pursuing good things, but we allow our selfish ambitions, our personal opinions to override unity. It can really be a delicate balance, and so that's why we say we've got to fight for peace. We've got to actively be thinking about this and pursuing this. Once again, Jesus' words are helpful here. In Matthew 7, 15 and 16, he gives us this warning. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them. By their fruits. We're all charged with protecting unity, making sure we're moving in the same direction to fulfill the same shared mission. And usually the best place to start is in your own heart. If you're trying to preserve unity by pointing out how someone else is not doing it, you might be the source of disunity yourself. Right? We need to start in our own heart, in our own mind, to be sure we're operating under the truth that it's not about me. I fight for peace. That's why this is such an important, all-encompassing letter when we think about what it means to be all-in followers of Jesus. A great way to stay on track with this uh, in our relationships is to follow this principle, to assume the best and ask for clarification. We're going to assume that we're on this shared mission together. We're going to assume that that person that's pricking me with their porcupine quill by what they're suggesting or, or what they've done or how they've interacted, we're going to assume that they're uh, trying to pursue this mission that we're on together, and then we're going to ask for clarification. We don't assume the worst. That never leads to unity. Assume the best and ask for clarification. That's good marital advice too, by the way. Um, all in Jesus followers understand the vital importance of unity and they fight for peace. Because we're in a relationship on a shared mission, and it opens the door for God to work in and through us. I want to give you one final picture of what unity can look like. So far we've talked, everything's been from the New Testament, but it's not just a New Testament idea. It's an Old Testament idea. I want you to see what David said in Psalm 133 as he described the power of unity. He said, Behold, how good and pleasing it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountain of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now this has some imagery that we're not really used to, but this oil they're talking about represents the anointing of God. And when you're anointed by God, it's to accomplish things that only he can do. But he chooses to use you as the, the mode of accomplishing it. So you become anointed by God. Um, unity doesn't just lead to a little anointing, does it? 
Unity leads to oil all over, running down the beard, catching in the robe, going down to the ground. That's a lot of anointing. Uh, it talks about the dew of Hermon and how it's, it's all over the mountain where God's made the promise to give us life forevermore. It's this idea of an abundance of anointing that God is, is wanting to do amazing things in and through us, but it starts with unity. It opens the door to more people experiencing this ultimate blessing of life forevermore in the presence of God. And again, it's not about me. It's not about you. Unity is about reflecting the very character of God so that the world can see and know the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. It's about knowing God and making him known. It's the ultimate purpose of this journey that we're on. And as we take this journey together as believers, there's moments where we miss the exit. There's moments where someone is poking us like that porcupine. Um, but because of the journey, because of the destination, we continue through those frustrations we experience along the way, knowing they're worth it as we're on this journey together with God. Because it matters to Jesus. Unity matters to Jesus and it opens the door for God to work in and through us. Let's pray together. God, I just thank you so much for today. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for helping us to see the importance of unity. And that it's deeper than just getting along. God, we have the relationships which we need, but it's also about that mission that we're on together. And so I just pray, God, that you would help us to see ways maybe in our own heart, in our own mind, that unity has not been something we've been pursuing, that we would make this commitment together as individuals and as a church, and God, to understand that it's not just about common ground. It's not just about getting along in this room. It's about the unity of believers in the church around the world, that we are on a shared mission together that you've given us to reflect who Jesus is, what he's done, to reflect your character, your love, your mercy, so that people know their need for uh, having Christ in their life. And so, God, help us to take that mission with the seriousness with which you gave it to us. And it's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.